Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the East-West Psychology Podcast, the forum for the exploration of psyche and spirit. Join our hosts, Jonathan Kay and Stefan Julich, and their guests as they delve into the intersection of psychology, philosophy, world wisdom traditions, the arts, and more. This episode is a continuation of our conversation with AXE student Devdeep Ganguly. We discuss principles and politics of spiritual anarchy, and Devdeep shares his thoughts about Peter He's controversial book, The Lives of Sri Aurobindo. Devdeep discusses a new book that he edited called Reading Sri Aurobindo, with the intention of making Sri Aurobindo's writings more accessible. And he also shares his other academic projects related to Sri Aurobindo with universities in India, China, and now France. We next explore the life and transcultural work of Chinese scholar, practitioner, artist, Hugh Xu, who lived in the Sri Aurobindo ashram for 27 years. And the conversation ends with Devdeep sharing his transformative experiences with senior sadaks in the ashram community. One other question I have is uh, something about Oroville that, that's really striking um, is the notion of spiritual anarchy. I guess this pervades the idea of integral yoga, but I just meant I came more in contact with that idea in Oroville when, when I was taking this class in 2018. Spiritual anarchy, what does that what does that mean? Or divine anarchy, I think was the word, the, the term that Sri Aurobindo used. Um, but it's it's a it's a fascinating concept that seemingly is again is it's it's at the heart of things if you will you know but what does it mean and how do we perform it collectively is really one of the most fascinating i think and also impair it's just a, a necessary question for us to engage in um and in terms of like we've talked about education pedagogy integral education and like the openness of you know which you you can you could take not as the shadow side of anarchy, but the the openness of like possibilities. But there's also like there's a thread, there's a spiritual thread that is that is kind of drawing you together as an individual, integrating you, drawing you together into community, drawing you together um, to um, to kind of lean into some of to these spiritual goals and 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 really creating them together. Um, and so, I guess the the question it. I turn the the question to your experiences in the ashram, because the idea of of having this open hole, um, it's it's quite a radical idea. And as we we know, humans have certain you know there's a lot. Human nature has still we we are still grappling with wants and desires, and and ideologically can fall into very different places. And so um, I just wanted you to. Uh, to uh, talk a little bit about your experience, because in the ashram there was an ideological rift between uh, uh, that happened with a scholar Peter Hees, and I think that was it, it was I was in the ashram, came to the ashram, and I saw people protesting, and I was is the last thing I would ever have expected. But it's like the ashram is it's not all 
it's not all harmony and 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 just you know go about and be in your bliss like like that's really like the yoga of sure been the mother is also about sitting in the fire it's about finding that edge and then trying to figure out well how is it that we can confront the problems that are holding us um static and and keeping keeping things not evolving not not in not transforming and so i think that these are the experiences that we can really we can grow from and learn from but do you want to share a little bit about that Mm. Well, before just just David, yes. just just for a sec before I just want to yes. jump in and and uh, because when we use the word anarchy, often in the West, you know, to my ears, it's associated with chaos, right? Anarchy is a form of chaos. We're not talking about chaos. We're talking about what what can we build in a community where there's a real plur- plurality, where we don't hierarchicalize and put leaders in charge that remain in charge. So uh, there's a real difference, but this is a, this is a tension. And I think that that tension also exists in, um, mm. in, in the ashram and in Oroville from, you know, things that I've heard. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's just native to being human, uh, I guess, or being in a bio body. So sorry for interrupting. No, absolutely, Stephen. And I think when Shrobindo speaks about divine anarchy or spiritual anarchy, I, I mean, there's a whole discussion in political science about the approaches to anarchy. And, and so there have been attempts, for example, to have anarchy based on reason, which is, of course, very problematic because we, we, we can um, barely get each other to agree just using the mind and its ideas. And broadly, anarchy as in a form of government where there is no government, devoid of government. A spiritual anarchy, a form of organization where everyone knows exactly what they are supposed to do or how they are supposed to act because they are in contact with their inner core, which is united in touch with everyone else's inner core. So you have a you have a community and ideal, which is where each one manifests their potential and their diversity, but from a place of absolute unity. So that is, of course, also the ideal of Aurobin, I believe. Um, yeah, with with Peter, um, I, I would even go a step further, Jonathan, and I would say that, and I believe that's something that the mother has also explicitly mentioned, that the ashram is a kind of uh, concentration of all the things that need to change because the yoga of Sri Aurobindo and the mother is a yoga of transformation for change of human nature. And there is no way you're going to change anything if you don't address it and see it and have it in front of you to deal with. And so I think two things which are really striking to me about my experience of you know, being involved with the ashram is one, the dynamism of the community, that the yoga really happens in work. Mother kept stressing that in her view, towards the end of her life, she even says that the more she, you know, uh, I mean, I forget the exact phrasing, but the idea is that she discovers more and more that it is, it is through work that Shurabindo's yoga is best done. And, and I think the reason for that is because work compels the nature to come forward. When you have to engage and interact with others 
and talk to others and deal with their difficult natures, you are straight away confronted with the unchanged nature of human beings. And that's where the work is really hard. It's not only an external work, but also an inner work. But I think what happened uh, around the entire episode of Peter Hees was kind of kind of a bringing up, you know, like a Samudra Manthan. Do you know that that image from the Indian uh, mythology where there was this, there was this, anyway, there was this moment where all the poison and everything came up. <laughs> so I feel like the incident around Peter, Peter Hees and his book, The Lives of Sri Aurobindo, was a moment when a lot of things that needed to be seen, confronted, addressed, and which were somehow, you know, somehow not people were not willing to deal with, or it was under the surface, or it kind of just came up here and there, but it was not really uh, engaged with. And all of that came up in a very uh, unpleasant way. And so for those for those of your listeners who may not be aware, Peter Hees is a historian and a member of the ashram. For many years, he, from the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, and he played a, a, a key role in bringing out the complete works of Sri Aurobindo. He was one of the main editors of the Sri Aurobindo Ashram Archives. And um, he, along with an entire team of people, um, did an extraordinary work in bringing out all these revised, corrected uh, editions based on the manuscripts of Sri Aurobindo. There's a long story to how this whole thing evolves, but I think the crux of the matter is that he wrote a book in 2008 published by Columbia University Press called The Lives of Sri Aurobindo. And this book was received um, variously, let's put it that way. So some people felt that the book was somehow hurting the sentiments of devotees, whereas other people, uh, really found the book helpful. And even, you know, some, some people said it actually helped them to understand and grow closer to Sri Aurobindo. Others felt that this was denigrating Sri Aurobindo. There were also, there was also some amount of mischief because extracts were circulated, which were not extracted properly or out of context extracts were circulated. And Peter was, uh, I believe, trying to write an academic book um, an academic biography. So he raises questions which can be considered problematic for some people, but he really resolves those questions in a very fair and I would say correct way. Um, so in short, what happened is that some people began to protest and to demand that the book be banned, that Peter should be expelled from the ashram and the country. And it, it really took on a life of its own. It was crazy. I remember watching all this and thinking, have people lost their heads? Like, where is all this vehemence coming from, this, this anger? And I was not able to really relate to it because I read through the book. And I mean, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a book. If you, if you don't like the approach, or you feel that there is a better approach, you either you know read something else or you write it yourself or or you or you just don't bother about it. But it felt like they give so much importance to this this issue. And 
Personally, I felt that it was more an occasion than the primary cause. I believe in the collective yoga of the ashram, there was a certain development or progress needed. And this was the pretext uh, around which it happened. And so I was incredibly proud of the fact that the trustees of the ashram, especially the managing trustee, who is still who is still the managing trustee, Manoj Das Gupta, who um, has been in the ashram from the early 40s. He was in the first batches of the ashram school, grew up directly under the mother's care, somebody who's lived his entire life here and never left Pondicherry even. And um, I, I, I could see, since I, one of the other responsibilities I had was helping um, in the trust office. So I was able to see up close the challenges and the problems for him because he was receiving a lot of different um, views on the issue. And one, of course, there was a lot of vehemence in the way that the people who were offended were communicating. And I was proud of the fact that after a certain point of time, he, they took a, a clear stand was taken by the ashram saying that, look, it's a book. And if something you don't want to read, then you shouldn't read it. But we are not in the business of, of prescribing or prescribing books. That's not, that's not what we do. So, and, and also I think Manozda wrote a very beautiful sort of open letter to the community. And I, I thought it was handled with a lot of, um, in the right spirit, at least. Um, but that was, of course, not acceptable to those who were offended. And then from there, it took a very ugly turn. <laughs> and it became litigation after litigation, court cases, demands for the government taking over the ashram like it had Orville earlier. And, and, and then basically, almost 10 years of a very nasty uh, purification, purification process. Uh, at the end of which, and I was really surprised because I also saw some elderly people that I respected being completely swayed by this this whole wave. And for me, it was like, this was so clearly an, a play of forces. And, uh, and, and at the end of it, it, I think, though it was hard, uh, but at the end of it, I feel that the right thing was done. Um, Peter was not expelled. He was issued a quit India notice. There's a whole story around that, but it was it was withdrawn. The government withdrew that quit India notice because a lot of people came together to to take his side and to 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 say that look, this is not correct. And then eventually, many of those cases and litigations that happened one by one were dismissed. The courts also took the view that the ashram was right in not getting into banning of books and so on. And so eventually, one by one, these things, it's, it's complete, it feels like a different, um, you know, generation now. Uh, Peter is still here, he works in the archives. And um, I think through this process, I feel that oh, we all grew and everyone learned what they had to learn. And it felt like there was a, there was a growth and a moment of crisis where it felt as if if we had not stood for these values, then maybe the very existence of the ashram would be in question. But fortunately, it, it went in the right direction. At least that's what I believe.
and um, yeah. Yeah, this is and this is a really important issue. Uh, you bring up there's so much in in what you just said that kind of even lies outside the scope of the particular instance of what happened with Peter and what happened within the ashram. I'm one of those who you know, and and I understand I'm a Westerner and I have a friend who's a, a devotee and for many many years and was raised kind of within the community who said, yeah, this is just an example of my Western egalitarianism. But I I felt that the book by showing uh, Sri Aurobindo's humanity actually increased my devotion. Yeah, I had I was one of those who just had that experience that this book opened vistas to me. And a lot of I people said really, that, yeah. Right. So but I'm not I, I don't want to, you know, I, I wouldn't I don't want to impose my particular way of looking at it. And as I said, my friend kind of very uh, cheekily <laughs> said to me, ah, you're a Westerner, you would think that way. But <laughs> I, I always think of that, you know, in, in terms of what I believe, uh, that I'm, I'm constantly checking in with myself because I have a lot of beliefs and they often get in the way. They often create tensions because if I'm holding a belief and somebody challenges it, what would my reaction be? Will I have an open hand, you know, where where there's pot, the possibility for transformation and change, or am I going to close my hand into a fist? In, in which case, there's very little you can do with this except punch holes in walls or hit other people. So uh, I, I, I don't, I have a very strong, and this is a belief, I guess, but it's also an experience of not imposing my uh, personal beliefs or biases on other people. And this is a practice, this is a sadhana in my estimation. And that the work that's required is the work of surrender. So here's the tension, and you see this in the United States today, and I'm, I'm guessing, Jonathan, that it's also there in, in uh, Canada, between uh, people who say it doesn't matter, you know, uh, you know, you can we can you can talk about being open all you want, but you're you're opening the door to a change uh, in the culture that I can't countenance. You know, we could say from a psychological perspective that those people are threatened, but we could also say that or they would say probably that they're seeing something that I may not be seeing. So there's a discussion that happens there. And to me, it always it, it tends to fall down along this argument between a kind of fundamentalist and literalist approach and a more open and pluralist approach. But those are my biases. So I, this is a, a, what you're saying about how this, um, I can't remember the words that you used, but this is in miniature kind of pointed to issues that really were percolating beneath the surface and actually needed to be raised because there's much more at stake than a book. Uh, and, it, you know, from what I could hear, and I, and I was touched on it, I mean, from what I could hear here in the United States, you know, I was fascinated with what was going on, a little horrified at times. Mm. Um, threats of violence are never pretty, but I was also affected by it myself, by uh, people who, someone I won't, I'm not going to mention any names, and I'm not going to be particular, uh, because this person is actually fairly high profile, but I was reprimanded for uh, expressing my devotion to the mother. And this person was saying she turned uh, integral yoga into a religion. And he was very upset with her. And I think it was over this Peter Hees incident. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, dis I disagreed. And I felt that, uh, you know, the religious instinct or the religious impulse within me is what drew me to the mother in the first place. 
yeah. and I can I can differentiate between the two of them. Uh, but there was a kind of an absolutist attitude, but they were actually defending Peter from an absolutist perspective. So it was very, very complex. And thank you for, for sharing that with us and actually um, sharing it in a very open, I, th I thought, and very measured way. Yeah. I just, you know, we're, we're, um, we've been talking for a long time, but, and, and, uh, um, we like to keep these, you know, kind of within a certain amount of time, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't ask you about your own academic projects related to Sri Aurobindo. Uh, that you, I know that you have an involvement with universities in India and China and now France. Um, and also, I don't know if you could tie this into the work that you've come to CIS to do. If that's a bridge too far, we can save that for another conversation. But uh, I'd love to hear about your, your own work. Yeah. Uh, just one quick thought to end the discussion around Peter He's controversy. I think also you, you touched upon this, Stephen, you spoke about religiosity, and I think fundamentalism, dogmatism, these are all very much a part of our world today. And I feel like after a century of, I mean, I'm just sort of rounding it off, but a century of kind of a more secular approach around the world, there's a kind of resurgence of these things which have not been addressed or dealt with, and they're coming out in the world in different ways. And I feel like it had to come out in the ashram as well. And there is a genuine problem uh, that we need to we, we need to address because even in the yoga, it's very easy. The lines are so, so complex and blurs, and then different people have different needs. It's not even a question of right and wrong. It's a question of what each one needs at what point in their life. But, but it's just something to be conscious of, I think, that we don't impose our worldview on others. And that is one of the lessons that I think came out of, of that controversy. I remember one very senior member in the ashram, again, no names, telling me that, you know, if somebody's throwing stones at the samadhi, would you stand and do nothing? And I had to tell this person that, look, the whole problem is that what you see as stones, somebody else sees as flowers. So that's the whole that's the whole complexity. Uh, you feel that it's something you know uh, problematic, but other people, just like you mentioned, I know, and this is nothing to do with Westerners or Indians. I know a lot of Indians who told me and others that they were deeply moved and they felt drawn to Shirobindo after reading Peter's book. So it really the the responses are varied, and I respect every response. If somebody says they didn't like it and they don't like it, and that's fine with me, absolutely. It's just a question of how do you deal with that difference of opinion and surely violence and threats and all that is not not in the spirit of the yoga um yes i'll just quickly i'll just quickly talk about uh, what you asked me and also tie it in with um a book that i recently worked on called reading sri aurobindo so um uh, my my interests over the last few years especially has been I'm really passionate about Sri Aurobindo's writings. I, I just draw so much from them. And I feel that they are such a blessing and a gift to humankind. And I feel like anything that can be done to make it accessible, simply accessible, not even, uh, it's not a question of making people read them, but that they're available so that people know that this incredible treasure is available. And, um, so in wherever I see an opening for this kind of work, I'm happy to be involved. So you're right. Uh, there have there, uh, over the last 
10 years or so, um, there, there have been a few uh, places in China, universities that have kind of been interested in Indian philosophy. And in the context of Indian philosophy, they're interested in Sri Aurobindo. And there's in, in some places, it's more open than others. So been very actively involved in making it possible for them to um, eventually perhaps design courses, but at the moment it's more creating material which can be read. So Richard Hartz and I have been working on this and uh, creating books, bi bilingual books, English and Chinese, based on the translations that were already done by Hushu or Shupanchan. And that's a whole episode maybe someday in the future, but here he was, I'm sorry, he was a Chinese gentleman who lived in the ashram for 27 years, from 1951 to 1978, during which time he translated most of Sri Aurobindo's major works into Chinese. And the mother was very, very actively encouraging him to do that. She got a printing press from Hong Kong. She, she got a salaried assistant. She gave him everything he needed to do that work. And it was incredibly, you know, it's yeah. incredible foresight because at the time there was no audience for these books, not even in China of, you know, Mao Zedong. So, um, so that's one part of the story. Um, and also uh, academic projects, uh, possibilities. Um, where, where there are universities in India and, and, and abroad which uh, are getting more and more interested. I read something interesting where the mother said, in 70, early 70s, that in 50 years, the, the elite around the world would open more and more to Shirobindo's thought. And when she uses the word elite, it's not in the sense of class or whatever else, but in terms of consciousness, in terms of evolution of consciousness. And, and I just feel like more and more there is this, this thirst, this, this desire, hunger almost, it's coming from everywhere. And if the, and and basically we're just responding to that in whatever way uh, I can. Um, so a friend of mine, Gautam Chikarmani, who lives in Delhi, he he's in a think tank and all of that. But he came up with an idea a couple of years ago for a book that would introduce the thirty-six volumes of Sri Aurobindo. And so we worked on this together, and we've co-edited a volume called Reading Sri Aurobindo. Um, where we've kind of written about one third of the book and the uh, the rest of the volumes, we've invited people who are familiar with those volumes to write in 2000 to 3000 words, um, not too simplistic, not too uh, difficult, but something which is not an introduction, but a sharing of how they relate to that volume, what they see in it, what are some of the ideas that they would like to share. And so we have, in fact, uh, um, Devashish Banerjee, you know, our professor who is the chair of the East West Psychology Program, he he has written two chapters, uh, as have a lot of other scholars, pra scholar practitioners uh, in India abroad. So that was a really interesting project. It came out in August, and we are still actually promoting the book um, in, in different parts of India. And um, CIS is of course something which uh, happened unexpectedly. Uh, the opportunity arose um, for this program and um, 
I think what Devashish, uh, Professor Devashish Banerjee has been trying to do is to build closer links between CIS and the ashram and Orville. And so this is part of that effort. And for me, it's been a really inter interesting experience. It's just the first term, but it's, it's, it's um, fun to be on the other side. I've been teaching now for almost 20 years. So it's nice to be uh, a student. And um, at the same time, I really love the the environment and the atmosphere it's completely uh, it's in some ways familiar to what familiar to me coming from here and i i also like the amount of reading i think it's it's just time for me to kind of work on myself uh, at different levels including intellectually and mentally and equip me with some more tools to continue doing what i want to do which is primarily i feel a role that somehow emerges more and more clearly for me is to do whatever I can to make the work of Sri and the mother accessible so that people read it on their own. I'm not interested in teaching it per se, but just that it is something that they learn to value and, and approach by themselves. What was coming up for me was that, uh, you know, I was, I, I was thinking of my own life tra trajectory and how, uh, you know, I have a, a story about the way that I came to the mother and came to CIIS, and it has kind of mythic overtones. But there's, uh, you know, Jung, the psychologist Jung used to talk about cryptonesia. He said that sometimes you have memories, things that happened to you in your past that you've forgotten, and then you have an experience in the future. And you, you think there's something magical that's happening here, but there's this memory that you're just not, I mean, it's there, it's deep down inside. I don't, th I don't think that these are mutually exclusive, but I, in the 1980, late 1970s, early 1980s, I read The Mind of the Cells, and uh, I actually made a trip. I was living in Manhattan, and I made a trip to Wiser Books and found an entire shelf of books by Sri Aurobindo and the Mother and picked the, I saw the Mother's Agenda, and it was just, you know, it was 13 volumes. It was way more than I had to spend, so I couldn't buy it. Uh, I think that I, I, I remember purchasing something. I don't remember what it was, um, but I, I was reading. Maybe no, actually, what I, I was sitting in the store and I was reading, and um, uh, and Satprem was talking about how the mother died. I mean, I got to the end of the book and it's like I wanted her to be my teacher, and here and she's died. What am I going to do now? Because she had died something like seven or eight years um, before, and. Uh, I thought I can't have a dead guru, and yet when I wound up coming through the doors at CIIS, uh, as I've, I've told before, even on this program, uh, somebody was sitting at my desk. Somebody from Oroville, uh, Bindu Mohanty, who you may know from from Oroville, and uh, she had a picture of the mother on her computer. And uh, I, I, yeah, I saw this photo, and my eyes began to tear up. And I thought, I said, "Who is this?" And she said, "Don't you know who this is? This is the mother. This is her school, right?" And all I knew was that she was the one who brought me. So I'm saying that I don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. My, when I first went to visit my, um, my uh, wife's parents, my, my, my in-laws in India, in Delhi, uh, I, I had no idea when I walked in their house that there would be a huge photo of the mother in, uh, in the room that we were staying in. And there were pictures of Sri Aurobindo in the house. And yet they said to me that Sri Aurobindo is generally seen as a kind of a revolutionary more than as a spiritual teacher in India. But little by little, as I've met people, 
I become more and more aware that people know exactly who he was. And he keeps creeping into conversations. So I was watching some uh, Tantrika who was on a, some po Indian podcast the other day, and uh, his name is uh, 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 Rajashi Nandi. And the entire conversation was about Sri Aurobindo. So I think you're right in what you were saying before that Sri, that there's there the, their importance seems to be growing. And they were even fading a little bit in in our school until Debashish kind of came on. And there's been a resurgence and there's so much interest because what they had to say was very important. It's a universal. It's about creating a, a, you know, a new society, a truly global society. And their finger was right on that pulse. Uh, and the mother really carried that work forward. Anyway, uh, to get back to what we were talking about, um, maybe uh, since we're going to take a little, little bit more time, we can, you can talk about uh, Hu Tzu um, and uh, that would be interesting to us. And um, maybe also some of your interactions with some of the older sadaks. That's actually a really fascinating topic. So um, we would just love to hear you uh, more on these topics. Yeah, I, I think Hushu um, or Shu Fanzhen, that's his, Hushu uh, is what was how he was known in the ashram. And later on, he's published under the name of Shu Fanzhen. It was really interesting for me, especially coming from the transcultural perspective that we have at CIIS, he was really a transcultural figure. So he's born in China uh, in the first decade of the 20th century and um, born to a fairly well-to-do family, etc. He, he, which means that he can, I'm sorry, he can have a, a, a good education. He goes to Heidelberg, uh, where he uh, studies Nietzsche, and then uh, at some point he translates Nietzsche into Chinese from German. And um, he comes back to China, and he is mentored by the father of modern Chinese literature, Lu Xun. Lu Xun, I'm not sure about the tones, but Lu Xun. And Lu Xun is he 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 is kind of a, a really important figure in the evolution of modern chinese writing and he's the one who kind of pushes him towards the east and so hushu it's also the time when the civil war is taking place in china as also the japanese invasion of china so it's a very disturbed period in chinese history he's moving from town to town and then eventually in 1945 he gets a scholarship from the Chinese government and he comes to Shantiniketan, Vishwa Bharati, which is the institution founded by Rabindranath Tagore uh, in Bengal. And this was a time when a lot of figures from Japan and China were interacting with Shantiniketan. This, this was also, I mean, Pan-Asianism kind of suffered during the Second World War. But it was still, you know, sufficiently close to the time when a lot of great figures in the sort of Asian Renaissance were still coming to Shantiniketan. So Hushu was there for five years, and then um, when when you have the, the 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 birth of the modern Chinese, you know, republic, the with with the communists coming to power, he lost his scholarship. He and and nor could he. He was kind of stateless. Uh, he goes to Varanasi, he learns Sanskrit, 
translates Kalidasa from Sanskrit into Chinese. And then he comes to, he hears about Pondicherry and he comes to Pondicherry in 51. And in 51, he meets the mother and something happens to him. It's, it's a life-changing experience. And he stays on in Pondicherry for 27 years. So he was the first and lone Chinese devotee of Mother and Shurabindo um, in that period. And uh, he, he was a painter as well. And he has left behind close to 300 paintings in the ashram extraordinary, beautiful paintings. And in fact, for his first exhibition in 67, the mother gave a message for the exhibition, which reads like this, here are the paintings of a scholar who is at once an artist and a yogi with my blessings. And I find it really special because I don't know of too many people whom the mother called a yogi, especially so publicly in a message which was put up on the ashram notice board. So he, he was clearly an extraordinary figure. And then the mother was very keen that he publishes his Chinese translations. And so she asks a devotee, Nandalal Patel, who lived in Hong Kong at the time, to buy a Chinese printing press and ship it to Pondicherry. And she obviously pays for the whole thing. And then she asks Nandalal Patel to put an ad in the newspaper for an assistant who would be willing to come to Pondicherry and help Hushu because these were big Chinese presses where the blocks had to be arranged manually. It's a lot of manual work. And so Nandalal Patel puts the ad in the paper, receives 17 applications. The mother sends the photographs to the mother. She selects one. And there is a young man who travels to Pondicherry and lives for almost four years with Hushu in his beautiful house, on the beach which the mother had given him for all his work, for his painting, his translation, his printing, everything happened in this beautiful house right next to the ashram nursing home. And, and so he just spends all his time, hours, day after day, basically leading a very, very solitary life focused on translating and painting and a little bit of teaching. And um, he brings out all these books which basically have no audience because there's no one in Pondicherry to read the Chinese and they're not uh, welcome in communist China either. So they are kind of just lying there, but the mother still encourages him to continue. And so after the mother left her body, then in 70, I think in 76, there was a change of scene in China with the government. And then in 78, Hushu finally decides to go back to China. He feels an obligation with all those printed books lying with him. So partly the Singapore center takes some and partly he carries, goes back to China. Back in China, his classmates from university are now in top academic positions and they invite him to Beijing and they know about his worth because he's a scholar of Sanskrit and German. And oh, by the way, he also translated the Upanishads into Chinese and the Bhagavad Gita and this <laughs> just crazy. Uh, and and he, he's written on Greek philosophy, on Heraclitus. He's written on, I mean, this just an incredible transcultural figure. And so he goes, he goes back to China, goes to Beijing and joins a very, very prestigious 
uh, academy in Beijing known as the China Academy of Social Sciences, which has a department of world religions. And so he joins the department. Apparently, he told them that his condition was that he would not teach, he would not join university meetings, he should just be left alone, basically. And uh, they, they agreed. And he had a few students who would go and visit him and learn from him. And um, the interesting thing is that once he went back to China, at least in niche circles of people who were interested in Indology and in Indian spirituality, his books started to be read more and more. And in 2006, they were all compiled and uh, the collected works of Hushu came out. He passed away in 2001 uh, or in 2000, I forget exactly the year, but anyway, in the early 2000s. And then in 2006, his collected works come out and then they start selling really well. And in 2008 is when we have the first people coming in from China saying, we've read The Life Divine, we've read The Synthesis of Yoga, we want to visit the ashram, um, what is this place? And this, there's this sudden, you know, uh, an opening which takes place. And I'm just amazed to think that that opening took a solid, you know, 50, 60 years of preparation. And the mother had the foresight to, to encourage Hushu in the 50s to, to do that work. So, um, so, so there is a lot of interest in Indian philosophy. And I would argue that even more than in the West, in China, when they think about the most important spiritual figures of India, they immediately land upon Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Aurobindo, and they often uh, also consider Tagore to be like a like an important spiritual thinker or philosopher, and Swami Vivekananda, of course. So uh, it's quite unique that there is this opening, uh, and I'm not saying this is a mass movement or it's not a religious movement, not at all. But it's a, it's 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 a. It, China and India have always connected at the level of philosophy and you know teaching, spiritual teaching and practice. We we're seeing that in our. Chan Zen Buddhism course also. And um, what happened with Hushu is that he does something really interesting when you think about it. He, he takes back to China translations of texts before Buddhism. So the Vedas and the Upanishads and the Gita. Uh, and then texts, spiritual texts after Buddhism. So Sri Aurobindo, in a sense, is the sort of culmination of that spiritual uh, teaching of India post, you know, in the modern time. So there's this whole void which he kind of fills in because otherwise spirituality in the Chinese context when it concerns India is only Buddhism. And so this, this Hushu does something which is really significant, I feel. So I have been, yeah, so there have been some universities who have been uh, curious about his artwork. So one part of the work that I do is with regard to his art. And I've just curated a, 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 a digital gallery of Hushu's paintings for New York University Shanghai, which is doing a special exhibition. So hopefully that should be out and I will share the links. Um, and the other part of the work is the is the philosophical um, uh, uh, reading and uh, of Sri Aurobindo's writings, which is happening. And I've met some really unique, I mean, really special, I don't know, I mean, special is not the right word. I've met some really sincere seekers in China who've 
who've um, had an opening to uh, this philosophical uh, approach, the integral philosophical approach. Have you had a chance to speak with Jun Wong about this? So for people who are listening, Jun Wong is a core faculty with East-West Psychology. And she and I have had a couple of conversations, not long ones, but a couple of conversations where she said that she's particularly interested in this scholar for obvious reasons. Um, and But I don't know whether she's kind of delved into his work any deeper. Uh, June Wang, uh, Pro Professor Wang actually visited Pondicherry just before the pandemic, one or two years earlier, and we had we had um, uh, very long conversations. She's seen these paintings or pictures of these paintings, and uh, I, I don't know how much she has read Shufanchen's work. Uh, we've not had the chance to discuss, but she definitely knows about him, and she has been uh, very curious about um, his life and his work. Yeah. Um, Stephen, you also mentioned, I think, my interactions with older Sadat. So this is kind of changing gears. Uh, but since we're talking about aspirants who lived in the ashram, I think it can sort of flow from there. Um, I, I think one of the things that I am really grateful for is the fact that growing up, we were surrounded by people who knew the mother um, closely and who had had close interactions with her. They were of course themselves growing up or children or, or young adults at the time that they were interacting with the mother, but they had a very close interaction and she was a part of their life in a big way, very physically because she would be there in the school, uh, you know, taking the, the the classes in the evening ashram playground. She would be there uh, during the sports. Um, she would be involved with the plays, the theater. She was really involved with the children. She poured her energy into the ashram school and she considered it one of the most sort of important means of preparing, you know, of, of yeah, of... Um, um, of of doing Shrabindo's work in the world. And so many of our teachers were the generation that grew up under her care. And I really enjoyed the interactions with them. I, I, don't, I don't want to paint any idealistic or perfect picture. It's not as if uh, they, they were all, uh, you know, they, they all had their challenges, their limitations, but there was this strong faith, which was very contagious, without words and uh, a strong sincerity towards the ideal of faith in the eventual accomplishment and a genuine effort to you know to manifest that that ideal of education of life of yoga and i think that's really precious when you're growing up to have that environment um there are a few people who really marked me and I think I can speak about one of them because I just happened to grow really close to him. His name was Nirod Baran. And Nirod Baran, or Niroddha as we called him in the ashram, he was um he was one of the early sadhaks. He came to the ashram in the in the 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and he stayed on. Um uh, uh, I was lucky because he lived till a very old age. So he passed away at the age of 104, I think. That's how I got to know him in the last years of his life really well. And uh, he was he, he was a doctor. And more importantly, he was the scribe for Savitri. So when Sri Aurobindo's eyesight started failing him, 
Niroda was the one writing out what Sri Aurobindo was dictating. And he was one of the 12 disciples who had close access to Sri Aurobindo in his room. So he was one of the attendants of Sri Aurobindo looking after his day-to-day -day needs. So he had a really close interaction with Sri Aurobindo and the mother. For those who may not have read, he has, he has two books which are really very special. One is called 12 Years with Sri Aurobindo, where he speaks about his experiences of serving Sri Aurobindo as an attendant for 12 years. And the other is called um, Correspondence with Sri Aurobindo. So it's Niroda's letters and Sri Aurobindo's responses. And it's it's really a beautiful correspondence full of, of mirth and humor and, and, and even laughter. And Sri Aurobindo had a very unique relationship with each of the sadhaks, depending on their temperament and what they needed for their sadhana. With Niroda, it was like a friendly banter. It's unique in all the correspondence that is there with Shobindo. So um, anyway, so he 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 he's he's quite an important figure in the history of the ashram. And so what happened is that he was, I think, 97 or 98 years old. And uh, somebody from the school office, I was 17 uh, at that stage when I was contemplating going out <laughs> and and you know so maybe studying somewhere else and graduating and and somebody from the school office called me uh, one of our older teachers RTD and she told me you know Niroda is 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 become old now but he still wants to continue teaching and he he's finding it hard to come to the school but he had a room inside the ashram main building but um, he still wants to interact with students and I don't know whom to ask are you free for an hour a week to just go to his go to go to his place and sit with him and i really thought that i was doing him a favor when when that offer came i was like yeah you know he's a important figure i know a little bit i've heard his name in the ashram context like he's important so maybe i'll spend an hour with him and you know almost like I mean, almost it almost felt when I said yes that I'm doing some some noble charity, <laughs> and of course it was nothing of the kind because I mean it was it was just ignorance and stupidity because this was a blessing and and a gift which uh, marked and shaped me very much. So I I started going to him once a week, and we would read some very simple text, something that you know Shobindo's life. And I started wondering, what am I doing here? And then just being in that atmosphere was did something to me. We used to sit with the samadhi visible at a distance and just he and me sitting in the room together and would read about Sri Aurobindo's life. And then I got curious about him and I started reading the books that he had written as also his correspondence. And then when I did that, I started asking him questions and I said, oh, this, you know, this particular letter is really funny or or this incident that you write about. And then it was like a friendship which developed. And then he he was very keen that I come to have, he used to have this tea ceremony. I don't mean the Japanese tea ceremony, but it was, he used to have tea at four o'clock and it felt like a ceremony because there were so many people who came and uh, it, was, it, was, it was like a, a, a daily ritual, you can say. Um, I, I mean, I'm using the word lightly here. So he was very keen that I, I come for the tea and then I started coming for the tea every day. And, and then it just became like an older friend. I mean, he was 
nine you know 80 years older than me but felt like an old friend and and um, he allowed allowed me to ask him whatever i wanted and we went on some picnics together on outings and then as he he as he approached his 100 years he obviously got slower and then when he was 102 or so he started getting a bit sick and so he needed an attendant so i became his attendant one of his attendants not the only one so i was there at least um i was there every day for a few hours helping him and then later on two nights a week so it became really a close rapport and many questions that i had not philosophical questions but more questions related around practice and around how it would apply to me as an individual and he would not long discussions, but just small, simple, short answers. And I really understood why in the Indian tradition, there is so much importance placed on the atmosphere or influence of a teacher because he didn't say much. It was not elaborate discussions, but just the presence and what he carried with him. It was such a strong atmosphere and vibration and uh, that moved me, moved me very much. And, and I remember um, when I was still figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And I remember asking him once, I said, look, I understand intellectually the yoga of Sri Aurobindo. And I'm convinced intellectually that to participate in this evolution of consciousness is the only meaningful thing to do. Um, but is it necessary to, to do it here in Pondicherry? Can I not do it anywhere else? And he, he looked at me with, you know, with the, with the face as if, you know, like what? And he said, where else do you want to do it? <laughs> I was like, oh, I, didn't have, I don't have an answer to that question. And, which is not to say that, I, I don't believe that the only place where you can do the yoga is Pondicherry, but I just feel that for me, that was what I needed to hear at that point of time. And um, it's not something that I'm stuck to even conceptually, but I understand why, especially then I needed to be in this physical space to continue my journey. And so he played a really important role. And I'm just highlighting his story as an example, because I think there were many such figures, perhaps even are such figures, still in the environment of the ashram and different people relate to different people in their own way um, but that's the joy and beauty of a community a community has many challenges i cannot highlight this enough it has many challenges just dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with people and in a space where the energies are so intense brings out everything in in the nature and you you can you can come across extreme rudeness and uh, you know harshness and even stupidity or ignorance uh, and that's part of the you know the adventure and at the same time you have these incredible dynamos of of knowledge of practice of wisdom and you can draw from them. And I'm reminded of what Nolini Kanta Gupta, another extraordinary sadhak, whom I didn't know, he passed away. I mean, I was too young. But um, he, he, has a, he has this beautiful essay on the inner and the outer ashram. And I often go back to it sometimes when I'm you know dismayed by certain things. 
And it's a beautiful essay which says that there is an inner atmosphere of a community and there is the outer atmosphere made up of the, the, the consciousness of the people who live there. But there is something deeper within which is also there subtler. And if you can remain in touch with that, then you are in contact with the true spirit of the place. Otherwise, it's easy to get disappointed sometimes. Wow, thank you so much for sharing all of this. This is really a, a deep dive into uh, into the life inside inside in your life and, and and a life inside the ashram, which is really, really precious. I was always um, fondly looking from the outside to the inside and being in in uh, in the ashram, staying in the cottage guest house doing my my sadhana, my musical sadhana, and I, I felt very much welcome um, into the community when I was there. Um, as an outsider though, but I think that it's, I, I, I always felt like there was, there was something like you're right. The vibration to be vague in a way that's a very, it can be a very um, good way to describe it, but it's also, what does that really mean? And that question of like, what is it that's happening when I'm, when I'm engaging in my, my sadhana here, when I'm opening to the sadhana of the collective um, and participating in whatever capacity I, I could, but there is something that there's, there's almost like the, it's the fabric of the the collective. There's a transmission there. There's something about it. And yet you can never put your finger on it because it's, or your mind on it in a way you can never say, well, this is what it is because as soon as you capture it into an image of that can be, can easily captured. And then, um, then you've, you've kind of, you've, you're going to be codifying it. Then you're going to be making it fixed in a way. And that's where I think that the whole, like we said, uh, the Shruban and the mother, they, they had their finger on something that was so imperative in our times. And it's, it's a matter of, of thinking, how is it that we can be together and yet not have to rely on a, an authoritarian type of a hierarchy in which somebody who has the authority, who somebody's given or takes the authority to say, this is the sadhana, you are either doing it or not doing it. I either give you my blessings or I don't. And so in terms of like, that notion of what is transmitted there it was always so real to me um and it was something that that eluded me as well which i think is that's that's the that's the beauty of it and maybe in my younger self i was that was sometimes frustrating because i was like well i want to <laughs> i want to know what it is <laughs> but i think that that's that sort of uh it c- comes up for me as like the difference between needing i mean let's see the difference between or, or the different natures of an image of faith you know and i think that that faith the, the my mental nature was much more was trying to grab onto well what is this image of faith that i i need or want or um what does it look like and and i need i need to know what it is rather than accepting the fact that it can't be as soon as you you do that then you okay, maybe you need to, to grab on and see an image very clearly for a second or for a time in your sadhana. But how does that work collectively? And, and how does that how does that image give way to another image? How does that, how do other people you're interacting with um, in the community um, change that, that, that image? So it's sort of like the image of faith is constantly kind of in, in, in becoming, you know, and how that image of faith is also not bound to a, a specific person as in like the, the kind of the archetypal idea of like the guru, you know, as, and it's so easy to, to, to kind of say, well, this is the, the image of my faith. It's the guru. And that person is the guru. And that, that person is a body and it's a fixed in space and time. And um, it may be in becoming as well, but 
we kind of close down our, I think we start to close down what, what is this, this, this image of faith, what's being transmitted between um, practitioners in the spiritual journey. And I think that's just a theme that, that come, that has come up, but in terms of your relationship to such a, I mean, to a yogi of, of the highest order, I think that that's a, just a beautiful, beautiful way of, of describing a, a, a relationship of transmission and how that it doesn't need to be in like the, 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 that stereotypical kind of guru relationship. It's, it's, and that's really where it's like the, 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 yeah. And, and that's really like my experience in integral yoga has always been, I've always been um, kind of, that has been shared with me. I was going to say that was going to, that's, that was taught to me, but it was more like it was shared through experiences that the guru is within and however you need that image to be, that's fine. But it is really the idea of like, don't make absolute don't don't make absolute anything because that's not that won't will not uh, allow, um, let's say, uh, the forces to 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 um, to navigate transformation as as much. But anyway, Devdeep, it's been a fantastic uh, um, couple hours spent with you. Really, really, um, um, you know, treasure this time together and and all that you've brought to the table. Um, and I look forward to uh, continuing the conversation um, at a later date for another podcast. But uh, we we've had a, a two two uh, very uh, enriching episodes with you. And all the best with your studies. All the best with your academic work and your your Gyana Yoga and uh, and and its integration. Thank you so much, uh, Jonathan and Stephen. I really enjoyed the conversation as well. Look forward to future engagements. It was wonderful talking to you, Debdi. And of course, we'll see you in the virtual campus uh, and in class. All right. Bye. Bye.
Thank you.